Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week I'm climbing my own personal Everest, or maybe a mountain a little closer to home. Our guest is the star of European horror fiction, Thomas Ulder Hervilt, and apologies there for my pronunciation, I got the green light on that from the man himself, but my accent makes anything other than David Jones a minefield. Anyway, Thomas blazed into the English-speaking horror world with his breakout novel, Hex, and now he's followed up with Echo. And that's where the personal Everest metaphor comes into play, because although Echo, Thomas's haunted mountain horror story, may take place on Alpine rather than Himalayan slopes, it nonetheless proved quite the painful journey for yours truly. As you'll hear, probably in a bit too much personal detail, this book frightened me. A lot. I mean, it really distressed me and got under my skin. Now you really want to read it, don't you? Sickos. (laughs) Thomas and I talk a lot about mountains and their place in horror. And in his life, he is a mountaineer. We talk about writing fiction in translation. We talk about the function of beauty in the modern world. I also tell him, at length, how much he scared the living shit out of me. So... Come with me to a tiny Swiss village. It looks so cosy and warm, but the mountain above casts quite the shadow. Let's talk scared. Well, good evening, Thomas, and welcome to Talking Scared. Good evening, Neil. Where are you speaking to us from tonight? I am actually in a chalet high up in the mountains in Switzerland in the Alps. I'm on a writing retreat here. Not a mountain book this time, by the way. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's good for me, for reasons we'll get into. But um, So you're in Switzerland. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't be anywhere better for this conversation. You look like you're in the coziest chalet in the world. It, it's very cozy. It's, it's all wood. It's, uh, they're like empty bottles uh, stacked up on the ceilings. It, it's very, very Swiss. Yeah, I think as I've mentioned on the podcast previously, I, I lived in Switzerland for a while um, and the view I just saw gave me pangs for it as much as the book I've just read really didn't. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that goes. I mean, obviously, you, you hail from the Netherlands. You're in Switzerland now. It's all very European. Um, yes. You're, you, you're definitely our first Dutch guest. And I, I believe, look, I think, think back over the the 78 episodes so far. I think you may be our very first guest who isn't from the UK, North America or Australia. Uh, finally, someone is representing mainland Europe. Well, uh, that's an honour. And uh, I'm sorry for my outrageous European accent. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I study English. My, English. my English is pretty good. I, I uh, you know, to publish books, I use translators, obviously. Um, I edit the translations, but uh you know speaking is fine mm-hmm. well i want to ask you about the translation stuff because obviously that's that's an avenue i haven't yet explored on this show but before we get to all of that first of all to set the scene many many of my listeners will know you because of the runaway success of hex in its english publication in 2016 it's a book that so many people consider essential to this century's kind of horror library and your new novel Echo is out February 8th, I believe. Is that right? In, in North America, February 8th. In Britain, actually, earlier, February 3rd. Oh, wow. There we go. We get, we get the bonus for a change. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Echo promises to cement you, I think, as one of the most prominent figures in the genre. Now, I'll be honest right at the start, because I've, I've hinted at this online already, and I'm going to say that this book utterly terrified me and that's not marketing spiel i'll I'll elaborate more fully as we go along but yeah it bothered me deeply and not entirely pleasantly um (laughs) but but let's start with what the listeners kind of need to know can you introduce us to the story of echo yes i i will echo the way hex was my uh, modern twist on the on the witch story. Echo is my twist on the possession novel. Um, it's a possession novel like The Exorcist is a possession movie, but 
the one thing that always strikes me in possession stories that it's always about religion there's always the religious aspect the devil the demon the priest coming to exercise and there's so many more things that we can uh, be possessed by um and i myself i am a mountaineer i climb mountains and whenever i'm in the mountains i always have a sense that mountains possess some sort of a soul if you will and as a climber you touch base with that soul very briefly and some are very welcoming and others are not so much and i think wouldn't it be a great idea for a story if you have this mountaineer who has this horrible accident way up in the mountains in switzerland his climbing buddy dies he survives but he's horribly horribly disfigured by the accident but he comes back changed he um he's possessed by the soul of this mountain and it changes him and it changes everyone around him so that's what echoes about yeah and lots of high strangeness ensues oh definitely <laughs> very very strange concepts very very uncanny original concepts in this novel things i've not come across before at all um and i suppose we'll start there so the last few episodes on this show have had an inadvertent theme, adventure horror. You know, we had Ali Wilkes with All the White Spaces, which dealt with polar exploration. Uh, S.A. Barnes' Dead Silence, which was spacefaring horror. And now yeah. you take us to the mountains. So obviously you said you're a mountaineer. Do you remember a particular moment when you thought, this is how I'm going to do my possession story? Was it, were you on a mountain? Is there a particular memory? Where did it come from? Definitely. Um, it's that, you know, I, I wasn't raised religious. Um, I, I'm Dutch. Religion doesn't play a big role in our society anymore. Um, I wasn't even raised very superstitious. And But still, when I'm in a mountain, you have that sense that there's this life in the rock and the ice around you. That And that's partly you can, you know, scientifically explain it by just, okay, so you're, as a person, you're awestruck by this magnificent thing that's so much bigger than you as a person um but still it feels like a life and each time i'm on a mountain i get that sense and i hear a lot of other climbers tell these same kind of stories um and especially the difference between different mountains i've a couple of years ago i climbed a mountain up here in switzerland it's called it's called the zino roadhorn um actually the first scene in the book uh, one of the first scenes in the book takes place on that mountain. Um, and that felt like a very violent peak somehow. Like, like it was, it's very jagged. It, it has a ridge full of rock towers. It's very difficult to get onto. But it, yeah, it feels very violent and young and vibrant and energetic. Whereas if you then climb a mountain like Mont Blanc, the highest peak of the Alps, it's very gentle very peaceful like an elderly lady so whenever i am on a mountain like that i always think like so will this mountain welcome me will, will it let me go will it be an easy experience will it be a welcoming experience um and, and i just knew this is something i had to write about because as i said earlier you know possession is so much broader so much wider than just mm -hmm. uh, all the religious aspects of it well it feels like possession and obsession are two sides of the same coin and and when yeah. you watch i mean i'm i'm not a mountaineer by any means i mean i've i've hiked in the in the alps a lot you know and even that was a little bit daunting i've never, never climbed a mountain in my life <laughs> um but I, I for some reason i'm fascinated by mountain literature and mountain storytelling so my favorite yeah. non-fiction book of all time is into thin air by john krakauer i just think it's a masterpiece you know um, mm -hmm. and I, I i love watching mountain documentaries like the dawn wall for example you know and stuff like that have you read touching the void by joe simpson i have yeah that's a truly horrific tale yeah, it's fantastic yeah i actually knew a guy who used to climb with him um and, oh. and basically said the man is an accident waiting to happen so whether that's true or not <laughs> i don't know um but yeah, but to go back, let's say possession, obsession. When you watch these documentaries and read these these books by mountaineers like yourself, there is that yeah. obsession there and that sense that you are consumed by this desire to go to the mountains, even though you know 
at the same time that it, you are taking your life in your hands. And that's a kind of literalization of possession, I suppose, isn't it? You know, you are overtaken by this thing that is that c- c- wants to kill you. It's basically the the concept of classic Gothic literature that you're awestruck by this force of nature. Um, but yeah, mountaineering ha- has a lot of that in it. There's a scene in the book where Nick, the mountaineer in, in Echo, actually talks to a psychologist about this whole process of what drives him to go up into the mountains. And the psychologist tells him, well, you know, I read an article and it basically said that mountaineers are generally not very nice people because they're very driven. They're very much, um, they have that goal inside and nothing else, basically. And um, obsession is an interesting theme because whereas Nick is obsessed by the mountains, obsession also plays a big part in love, of course. Mm-hmm. And Echo is in a sense also a love story because a good part of it is actually not from his perspective, but from his lover. And um, that 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 explores the same themes of obsession and possession as well, I think. Well, yeah. And so you said, you said a few kind of threads I want to pick on there. So let's stay with mountains because we're on that topic to begin with. But I have things to ask about about the relationship in this as well. Yeah. But you just said something really interesting. So you just said that, you know, the gothic imagination and, and that um, the allure of mountains and the danger, the fascination and all that sort of stuff. Well, so to elaborate on that, the gothic was born as this sort of dark cousin to 18th century romance. And, and it True. relied a lot on the aesthetic theory of the sublime, which is this weird schizophrenic aesthetic of both being terrified and fascinated in equal measure. And and mountains have always been a major emblem for the sublime, the Alps in particular, because obviously all the poets went there. Yeah. Because mountains exert both a push and a pull. They warn humans to stay away whilst also luring them in. And yes. that's something that I think you literalize in Echo with this with this evil mountain, the Mordit, being the perfect illustration of that push and pull. Is that born from your own relationship with the mountains? Do you feel that sublime terror and fascination? I do, because even though there's this kind of almost like a fatal attraction that you want to go up these peaks that you feel the urge the desire to go up there at the same time it also scares me um like even though i'm a mountaineer i am a little bit afraid of heights Uh, i'm a little bit afraid of falling especially and that's probably a good thing because otherwise as a climber you would do you would become reckless and do stupid things and make stupid decisions um i for once in the mountains um I probably have turned back more often than I have succeeded in climbing peaks, uh, which is probably a good thing because, Mm -hmm. again, otherwise you make stupid decisions and get yourself killed. Because mountains are dangerous places. They are not welcoming. They are hostile in a sense. Uh, It's not a place for human life. I have experienced many times that even though you make wise decisions and even though you are smart in what you're doing and approaching it in all the right ways. Um, there are still risk factors that, that are not in your hands. And there's luck or fate or whatever you want to call it, you know, plays a big part in that. And that is a part that actually scares me. It's really interesting that you use two words that I've actually written down in my notes here. You said they are mountains that are hostile. And they are, yeah. you know, anti-human. And they're the exact set phrases that I've written down. And, yeah. and that's something that comes across clearly in this book, in particular through the character of Sam, uh, Nick's yeah. partner. Uh, and there's a few quotes. that I, I just made some notes like that. I just think uh, they, they get across everything we're talking about really concisely. Um, mm-hmm. Because Sam says that there is something conscious about mountains that deliberately makes you stray from the trail of happiness. And in another, he says that the way they block the horizon gives him the jitters. They make the world too small, like everything behind them is a secret. Yeah. Now, is is that something you're writing from your own perspective? Or is it your partner? Does your partner feel that way about the mountains that take you away and the risk they pose to you? Or, or is it just just a creative thing you've come up with? 
No, he actually does. Um, my partner doesn't really like when I go up in the mountains. Um, and that makes sense. And it made me more aware of what I'm doing. I think I've, so I've been in a long-term relationship now for about eight years. And at the beginning of that relationship, my climbing goals were a lot you know, higher, more far-fetched than they are now. I've become more aware of, I guess, my own mortality, of, of the dangers that I'm going through if you're up in the mountains. Um, because even though I see the beauty in them, others see danger in them. And that that's a really uh, distinct way of looking at them, the way Nick, the climber in the book, and Sam, his partner, look at the mountains, where, you know, Nick has the desire to to literally hold the summit of each mountain in his own hand sam is is terrified by it he doesn't understand that urge to go up there i mean yeah and 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 i come from, uh, very much from sam's perspective <laughs> like <laughs> I, I i've never been able to fully comprehend what it is that drives a climber to do what they do because I, and and i don't expect you to be able to explain it to me it feels like one of those um, experiences that is almost religious in that you either get it or you don't and there's almost no point having a conversation about it do you, do you know what I mean well yeah I do I mean if you look throughout history gurus uh, monks prophets all came down from the mountains and interpreted you know the experience that they had as some kind of like divine revelation but you know it's something that I write in the book as well. You don't need to be a spiritual seer to feel that life in rock and ice. You, as a climber, you feel it every time. And it's that experience of, well, maybe of the divine that I'm looking for when I'm there. And it's also experience of pure beauty. Um, when early in the morning, in the icy cold, it's dark, it's horrendous, you feel sick because you had to go up this early and... Your stomach is hurting because of the, um, the 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 effort you're putting yourself through. When then suddenly the sun rises at the horizon and you see this layer of clouds beneath you, you feel like you're on top of the world and you're the only one there experiencing that moment of sheer beauty. That is just spectacular, and that's the reason why uh, I climb. That that pure sense of beauty. Mm-hmm. But that obviously with it comes a terror as well because as you say not in your control weather comes in you know anything can happen oh yeah i mean yeah. It's, it's it's a really trivial comparison but when when i was reading your book i, I was put in mind recently of um I, I i'm a i'm a runner um that's my kind of hobby um mm-hmm. and i me and some friends in november went and did this this kind of mad run um there are three hills in yorkshire n- not far that far from my house and you can kind of they're the three highest peaks and they're not high at yeah. all they're about a thousand meters and the, the idea is it's a 24 mile route to do three of them in one day and and we we ran it basically um and i i was just not in the in the right condition to do it and after about 17 miles i just found myself alone on this peak in complete whiteout fog in shorts <laughs> and t-shirt with like the wind just like a knife and I remember thinking, okay, so this is how I die. Um, <laughs> and, and that was at like a thousand meters. So when I was reading your I mean, book, I, I was thinking like, wow, this is so far beyond my my comfort zone. <laughs> it is easy to get yourself in real trouble in the mountains. Uh, your experience relates that. I've been in situations in the Alps where I was trapped in a mountain in northern Italy, high up on the flanks when a thunderstorm hit. Uh, and you literally heard all the metal on your body, like the carabiners and your ice axis. You felt them buzz because they get statically charged. Mm-hmm. So you become this uh, human lightning rod, basically. Uh, it's extremely dangerous. Um, I've been in this situation where I had to rappel down this hideous cliff for a long time because we were trapped somewhere we couldn't go through. And we had to cut a rope to save ourselves. And, you know, it's it's experiences like that um, that make you aware of the dangers. And even though when you make all the right decisions, it can still hit you. I once was climbing an ice face in Switzerland 
when a huge avalanche broke down right behind us and, uh, and covered the glacier where we had just walked like 30 minutes ago. Um, and that was just a moment of sheer bad luck if it would have been there. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the, the factors that you, you, you don't decide upon. And that, that's a scary part of it. Indeed. And I think for most people, being in a situation where there isn't um what, what what how can i say it being in a situation where there isn't an infrastructure in place to keep you safe yeah where if the, if something goes wrong that's it you know there isn't a a literal or figurative safety net you are on your own on your own reconnaissance and if it goes wrong it goes wrong i think that's a very yeah. alien concept to most people and it's it's quite right for a horror story even before you get to possession and and demons and things like that you know um, yeah and that's why the mountains lend themselves so well for a story like this um and then of course you know because they are these remote places where legends Rome and where people are suspicious of of the of the the forces of nature, they lend themselves perfectly for all sorts of really creepy tales that you can tell about them. And and so yeah, yeah, and that's you, where the legend of Echo starts. Well, one of the things I like about this book is it's full of lore and legend and kind of embedded yeah. ghost stories. And I did wonder: is it entirely something you created this lore, or does it have any root in in local Swiss or other mountain legend? I think because mountain communities are so on themselves and so seared off from the rest of the world, traditionally, um, they are deep rooted in stories and in legends. I mean, what do you got to do when you're snowed in for a couple of months and your connection to the valley is broken, basically, in the old days when there was no internet, then, then you told each other stories and... Uh, people told each other stories to come up with explanations for mm-hmm. um, the strange noises the wind made on certain days or the um, strange sightings in the sky that you could see up in the mountains. So uh, there are a lot of actual stories. Also here in Wallace in Switzerland, where I'm right now, where and also where the book takes place. Um, and if you look at, you know, mountains around the world there's many mountains that have legends around them like mount fuji in japan or um uh, in nepal there's there's one mountain mount machapuchari which is forbidden to climb because it's the place where the gods are supposed to be mm-hmm. um the three people who have tried to climb it all have died one on the peak two like half a year later well it can be just a coincidence but it gives for a really good you know uh story <laughs> Yeah, but but this law was entirely your creation, was it? This idea of the the morose yes. and yeah, and, and the yeah. birds that hold the souls of people lost on the mountain and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the um, the Modi, it's the mountain in uh, Switzerland where this all sets. It's a beautiful name. There's actually a mountain called Mont Modi near the Mont Blanc mm-hmm. in France, uh, and it's called Cursed Mountain. And I thought that was a name too good not to use, so I used the name Modi, but the the, the mountain is entirely fictional. Yeah. And then you just sat back and thought up a, a whole kind of folklore around it. Yeah, I thought, would it be cool if if you're climbing in the mountains and you discover this mountain in the distance that you just don't recognize from the the guidebooks and you don't recognize it from the map. And of course it triggers your curiosity. You go there to explore it. And then when you go into the valley, it actually is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And when you go higher and higher, you notice that your climbing buddy starts behaving strangely and gets, well, obsessed or maybe possessed by the mountain and yeah that that seemed like a really frightening start of a story it well it definitely is um and and one of the one of the details that i loved and as, as i said it, it's, it's a spoiler free podcast this so we'll be we'll be a little bit elusive but <laughs> one of one of the ideas in in this story that is that nick the climber who comes back from the mountain is that his disfigurement is in some way because he has a very badly disfigured face that's covered in bandages for a, yeah. a, a large swathe of the story and his disfigurement in some way kind of represents the topography of the mountain um yeah. 
And I just, I, I thought that was just a beautifully sort of surrealistic idea. There's this really creepy scene quite early in a book where Sam tries to look underneath the bandages because, of course, Sam needs to come to terms with the fact that his partner now has this this disfigured face that he doesn't that he doesn't dare to show, mm-hmm. uh, and he tries to look beneath it, and um, he actually it feels like there's like rock beneath there and there's ice beneath there and he's looking into this crevasse and it, it's, and something comes out of it, of course. And it's very ghoulish. <laughs> yeah. And it's a, it's a way of almost taking body horror and making it sublime. And I thought that yeah. was an ingenious thing to yeah. do. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm not really a big fan of body horror, but you know, when you indeed make it into something, um, magic realistic, almost like a yeah. sublime, what you say, yeah, that, 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 then it sometimes works. So we've kind of mentioned Sam and Nick enough times here, and I, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about their relationship because it's frankly one of the most interesting non-horror parts of the novel. I've read a good few reviews of the book now from you know people who've had copies like myself, like proofs and things, and yeah. almost all of them credit you with creating this genuinely warm and loving relationship in the middle of a horror novel. And that's a surprisingly rare feat because so many horror novels, I think, give us a kind of shorthand or an, an assumed romantic love. It's kind of like, you know, yeah. he, he loves his wife, you know, he loves his, his, his husband, whatever, you know, but they, they don't really <laughs> delve into it. How important yeah. was it for you to distinguish that relationship as something real and authentic? Well, very important because quite soon when I started writing this book, I discovered that the real story was actually not with Nick in the mountains. It was with Sam dealing with Nick in the mountains. It's about, it's a love story about someone who sees his partner come home changed and in a horrible way and who suspects a lot of really bad things are happening there. But in order to make that work and to make it convincing that um, even though this happened, not only the physical disfigurement, but also the supernatural disfigurement, if you will, um, that Sam is still always on his side to try and see the good in him and try to solve it for him, even when he starts realizing it might be a really difficult thing to do. Um, you need to feel their love to make that work. Um so that was very, that was key for me to make that work. Well, uh, you say feel their love and, and you definitely do. And it's, again, it's a th- the thing that I come back to often on this show, just because it, to be, to be honest, I find it quite annoying, is that um, it's quite an erotic story between them. You know, it's a very physical mm-hmm. relationship they have. And I'll be honest, I find that eroticism has been almost excavated from horror. <laughs> I've said this to a few authors, so listeners, I apologise for repeating the question, but I find it a pertinent one. And I feel like it is only same-sex relationships that are kind of putting the work in to retain that aspect of a relationship. And, and I found mm-hmm. the actual sexual part of, of Sam and Nick's uh, partnership really quite beautiful because it's about coping with disfigured bodies and it's a, it's about abnormality and, and about, you know, accommodation, I suppose. Did that well, occur to you at all when you were writing it? It did. It also, for me, it was important to tell an honest story there because um, Sam says pre- pretty early on in the book, that it is it is assumed that we all stay together no matter what that mm-hmm. appearances don't matter that um you know your body your face doesn't matter it's it's all a spiritual connection and in a way that is an important part but of course when you're 24 like sam physicality plays an important part in your life and the, the, the attraction between human beings plays an important part in your life. And if, like Nick, for instance, you've been this gorgeous person all your life who um, 
has taken that for granted basically and suddenly when you lose that that also changes you as a person that also has a has an impact on you and those are very honest things that i don't see a lot of stories dealing with i see a lot of people talking about because it's almost you get blamed to say or you get like attacked if you say that that is actually a big part of what love is as well well exactly that right and i wonder did it feel risky to pursue that question because as you say in reality it would completely be an issue and you'd be quite sympathetic to sam's new reality but in our mm -hmm. fiction we are used to these romances being pure and selfless did you yeah. worry at all that you may lose audience sympathy for sam by having him admit that his 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 boyfriend's disfigurement is an issue <laughs> I don't think so because it's it's a very human thing. I think I, I I think people will relate to that when they honestly look in their hearts. Like, okay, what would I do in that position? It is very human to wonder: Would you? Would I stay with you if you were horribly burnt in an accident? Would I stay with you if um, you know pit bulls mold you? Like 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 Sam is joking at some point in the book. Um, it's, it's, of course we want to tell each other, of course we would do that, but really think of it and, um, not everyone would be capable to. And Sam tries to be a person who can, and in the, I mean, he, I, I think the strong message of the book is that in fact he is, and he can, because until the very end, he wants to fight for Nick and wants to make their love work um so i think that you know um says something good about him as well well the, the journey really i think is they start as almost i don't know i kept thinking of brett east and ellis right they they, <laughs> they start as almost characters from less than zero obviously far less odious and you know <laughs> far less high <laughs> but they they seem to start as to use a very british and ellis term kind of hard bodies you know what i mean and mm -hmm. as as the narrative progresses they they seem to find something deeper in themselves and in each other and it, it's a strangely heartwarming story of of a man dealing with his his boyfriend's possession it, it's it, there's, there's a there's a heartwarming strand in there at the same time I think so. It's it's very loving. It's very it's it's very sweet and tender in a way. And even tender though tender is tender is the word. Yeah, that's the that's the best word. Yeah, and even though it's it's at times very scary, um, I wanted to make that you know tenderness felt. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So you right. We've talked about love, but you, as you just said, it's very scary. Let's <laughs> talk about fear. Yes, <laughs> a little or or a lot. Let's so, talk about fear. The opening scene of this novel, yeah, yeah. Right, it's had a lot of attention for being so damn scary. And as it's the very first thing in the book and not yeah. a spoiler, I hope we could talk about it a little. Don't want to spoil it for anybody, but in a sense, a woman wakes up and she finds people in her house who are getting closer and closer to her bed every time she looks away. It's complete nightmare fuel. You know, this actually came to me in almost a little nightmare really? i used to i used to live in a house in the netherlands that had an attic and my bed was in the attic room and the only way to get there there was a hole in the floor and there was this very steep staircase running up there so at night when you woke up and you had to go to the bathroom you had to descend those stairs to the into this black hole and then we go to the downstairs hallway and you could use the bathroom so this one night i woke up alone in the house and i needed to go to the bathroom so i walked to that staircase and i looked down and in a flash i imagined i saw people in the staircase staring up at me and i got this jolt and i ran back to the bed and um i shook myself awake and i was like oh yeah I imagined that, of course. So I turned on all the lights, 
But I was afraid to actually go back to the staircase because what if those people were still there? So I put out, uh, you know, I opened my laptop, put on a nice YouTube video and tried to relax myself a little bit. And then I still needed to pee. So <laughs> I went back to the, to the hole in the floor and I imagined, so what if these people are still there, but what if they've come a little bit closer? And that's exactly what happens in that opening scene. Uh, Julia Avery, Sam's sister, um, imagines, or well, she wakes up needing to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night in a chalet up in the Swiss mountains. And she, 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 she sees these people in the staircase staring up at her. And each time she looks back, they come a little bit closer. It's it's truly horrifying. It's one of the most memorable opening scenes to a book I've ever read. And I know other people think the same. It's people are saying it's like a, an old timer of an opening chapter. And a little <laughs> little insight into my life for the last week since I read this book. To go to the bathroom in my house, I have to get up, leave my bedroom, and the bathroom door is at the top of the stairs. And uh-huh. every time I've ever gone and every night I go up to go to pee and I Every night, I've had to turn the light on and look downstairs before I go to the bathroom. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And that makes me very happy. <laughs> well, I'm glad because it hasn't made me or my wife happy because when I put the light on, she wakes up. So, yeah, your name is mud in my house right now. Um, <laughs> right, so, I appreciate that. <laughs> I mentioned in the intro, and I, I, I actually mentioned this on Twitter, that this book really bothered me. Now, I, I often say books terrify me. I did a whole Patreon podcast about the books that scared me the most this Mm -hmm. book would be going right into that podcast right because i have genuinely had quite intrusive thoughts about this book since i've finished it um Hmm. don't feel guilty it's your job you know what i mean um (laughs) i've done my job right (laughs) yeah yeah um but it wasn't it wasn't that opening chapter and it wasn't the i mean people on this show who listen know that i have a real problem with possession narratives I don't believe mm-hmm. in anything religious, but they freak me out. I don't know why. Um, mm-hmm. It was actually, to be honest, it, it's the stuff about some people who come into close contact with um, with with Nick after his accident are are essentially driven insane. Yeah, th- th- there's a thing about they feel like they're falling, but as far as I understand it, that's not actually literal. It's more of a metaphor, isn't it, for what's happening to them? Well, the the thing is, everyone experiences experiences um they will experience stuff that they cannot explain because they sense the mountain inside nick yeah and that is a completely alien concept of course so you don't recognize it yeah but you recognize you would recognize it if you would stand right in front of a mountain or if you would stand on top of a mountain you would feel the force of the wind you would feel the force of the avalanche you would feel the uh, the vertigo, uh, you would feel the sense of height, of, of, of falling if you fall off. That yeah. In that context, it would be explicable, but they sense all these things. So, some get altitude, altitude sickness, literally. They get lung edema and then brain edema because um, they are too close to Nick. And then, and, and, um, of course, it's inexplicable, but it's all because the mountain is there. Yeah. Now, I... I've had a kind of vertigo thing for the last weeks. I think, as I said to you off air, I think I've had an (laughs) inner ear thing. So this has not sat well with me for the last week at all. (laughs) That must have been an an intrusive experience then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's it's not been fun. But it's, it's got me thinking about the fact that don't you think it's fascinating that someone can know a book is fiction? And in my case can even speak to the person who made up the story right you know what i mean mm-hmm. like you can't mm. get more proof that something is not true than speaking to the guy who made it and yet good fiction can still get inside your nerves like that isn't that the kind of dark miracle of storytelling of course i mean it's it's the kind of experience that we all long for as lovers of horror fiction you know that feeling of when you were when you were a child and someone told you a creepy story or you saw your first horror movie or uh, you read your first horror novel and you were under the covers and you n- just knew that something was in your room or under your bed uh, or that your parents would be dead in their bedroom or what have you. Um, 
it's that sense that these stories are more than words on paper. It's that they are real and they intrude in our own lives. That that's a thing that scares us, but it's also a thing of beauty. And that's why we love these kind of stories. I mean, it's only happened to me a few times. Once with your story, when I watched The Ring, I was 21 years old. I had to unplug, oh. the, t- I unplugged the TV at 21. You know what I mean? I, um, yeah, I have a I Ring story had- to tell you, if you like. I, I saw that was my first, basically my first grown-up horror movie that I saw in cinema in the Netherlands. And um, my mum was ill. It was in February. She was she had the flu. So she asked me, when you come home, please don't turn on the lights because it will wake me up. So I saw the ring. I totally did not see the ending coming. I was terrified by by the girl creeping out of the television with the long hair in front of her face. Um, and I went home all jittery. And... I groped my way through our house up the stairs in the dark because I couldn't disturb my mom. Um, And I went to my bedroom. The lights were not working, so I I needed to grope for the television remote control that was on my bed. I turned on the television, and there was just snow. And I almost had a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) It It turned out that the cable was out, and it was just a stupid coincidence. But I... For 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 a week, I saw that girl with the black hair everywhere. Yeah, is that's what I mean? Isn't it mad? Like you know, it's a film. You you like we 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 know who Naomi, Naomi Watts is. You know what I mean? Yet yeah. Still, yeah. <laughs> still, you have this kind of truly irrational fear that yep. that girl is going to come out of your TV screen. It's it's the str- but I mean, it's a huge compliment for the maker. So when you say you experienced that with Echo, that's I, I I'm just honored by it and thrilled by it that that my words could, you know, trigger that in your Mm. imagination. Well, I'm glad one of us is happy anyway. That's the main thing. Yeah. (laughs) So, right, but speaking of love of the genre, your echo is is very much a a homage to the entire history of of Gothic horror. Um, Yep. You know, it's it's full of subtle and sometimes not so subtle references. One of my (laughs) favourites, actually, that really made me smile there's this mm. moment when Nick is, you know, he's scarred and disfigured and he's slinking around this Swiss village at night in a yeah. hood and he meets a literal mob of villagers with like torches and pitchforks. And it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a direct reference to kind of the cinematic Frankenstein. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, each section. You just know there's a mill that needs to burn down there somewhere. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Exactly. Um, or some, a woman with a beehive just waiting to appear. Yeah. But each section also borrows its title and a kind of relevant quote from a piece of famous horror writing. Yeah. Why did you choose to cram this book with so many references? Because it was already so replete with 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 substance. Why why choose this to be your you know your your referential Bible? Because Echo, in a sense, is my ultimate love letter to the Gothic story. By contents alone, what we talked about earlier, the, the, the experience of being awestruck by the sublime, by the forces of nature, that is the essence of Gothic fiction. So um, I wanted to tell the story as a Gothic story that way. A lot of it is also written in um, in letter form or diary form or notes or, you know, um manuscripts or emails um and of course when you look at i mean there's so many stories that have references to the mountains in them there are the clear ones like at the mountains of madness by lovecraft of course but there are so many stories that you know refer to to themes that that took you know that that happened in his book um and so i decided you know each each chapter is named after one of these classics like something wicked this way comes or the invisible man or um the log of the demeter from dracula when you know there's a diary Mm um you know the modern Prometheus, of course, with with Frankenstein, with uh, that was a because it's, the Prometheus theme plays such a big role in the book, um, and 
then of course I wanted to get quotes from all those books uh, to you know as a motto for each chapter. That these are not just throwaway references; they they mm-hmm. directly relate to what's going to happen next in the story. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So was it a case of like you know fist pump when you found a quote that just fit perfectly? Yeah. Sometimes it was immediately clear, but sometimes it was. Um, uh, it was a real fine and I was really happy if I could make it work. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a lot of reading involved and there was uh, also a lot of work to get permissions for everything. Um, but um, it w- all worked out. I was very happy and we all made it work. So, yeah, you know, mo- most of these are like in a public domain, like, like, you know, the turn of the screw or Lovecraft. Uh, but some like like uh, the Clive Barker quote or Stephen King's quote, we had to get their permissions, and they all gave them, which was really nice of them. Well, of course, Stephen King, big fan of yours. He he was the person who kind of launched Hex into the stratosphere. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, that was such an awesome moment. I, I remember that moment vividly in 2016 when he tweeted about Hex. That I mean, so many readers across the world has, has disco- have discovered my book because of that tweet and because of his words, and I really am very grateful to him. Yeah. Just yesterday, I uh, this is an exclusive. Just yesterday, I got an email back from Stephen King's UK publicist who said that whilst he barely does any UK press, she would do her absolute best to present my invitation to him for this show. So ah, if, awesome. if that happens, I'm just going <laughs> to basically crawl into my bed for for like six months in shock before i speak to him <laughs> uh, <laughs> i would understand that <laughs> yeah uh speaking though of nods and acknowledgements i did notice in the afterword you specifically single out george r martin sorry george r r martin as a major yeah. influence on on you and this book now now i'm a massive fan of george's I'm, i was a game of thrones fan back when it was called mm-hmm. a song of ice and fire i was furious when other people found it i was like that's my thing um <laughs> and i also think that fever dream is possibly the most underrated vampire story ever right but i i don't think most people would consider george in terms of horror because he's known as a fantasy writer. Can I ask, sure. what, what is his influence on you and, and this story? So that had to do with process. Um, in 2016, I was on tour in the United States for Hex. Um, and I basically suffered from writer's block. Um, no one really prepares you for the pitfalls of success. Um, I wasn't prepared for it. I was just... Uh, of a relatively unknown writer from the Netherlands. And suddenly my book was published in over 25 countries. And, and you know, I, it got rave reviews from Stephen mm-hmm. King, from The Guardian, from what have you. So, you know, all my dreams basically came true, which was awesome, but also paralyzed me because um, it's the same when you are mountaineering. Whenever you climb a certain mountain, you live up, you, you look forward to it. You, you research it all. You, you, there's a long anticipation before you get there. And then you reach the summit. But from the moment when you are on that summit, it's also something Nick says in the book, it loses its magic and you see a higher peak in the distance, mm-hmm. a more difficult peak in the distance, and you want to scale that. Basically, everything what I do in my life, I approach the same way. I, you know reach a certain goal and there's something bigger waiting to happen for me basically. So when I finished a book, I always feel my next book has to be bag- better, bigger, grander, more original, more special. Um, so I felt a lot of pressure when all these people loved this book so much. So I froze and I didn't really know how to write anymore. I didn't really enjoy it anymore. I was just working and working and, you know, touring everywhere. And it is awesome to meet readers everywhere, but I also was worried. So yeah, what's for the next book? Um, And then I asked George Martin when I was in the United States, Uh, he invited me over in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he has a cinema where, um, writers do readings and 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 q a's and so i did my reading there and afterwards i asked him how 
how do you deal with the pressure? And he said, the only thing you can do when you feel that pressure is go back all the way to the beginning, how you used to write when you were younger, before there were hundreds of thousands of readers, just you and the paper and the words. And write the story like you used to write a story back then and enjoy it. And that was the key part. And to hear a person like George R.R. Martin say that, that moved something in me. And I went home and I started writing again and I enjoyed it. I had never had so much fun as when I finished Echo. Uh, I've never had so much fun writing a book as what, you know, uh, the major part of Echo that I still needed to write. Mm -hmm. um, so he really helped me overcome that bump. Well, he's a good friend to have. Oh, definitely. <laughs> if anyone knows anything about plowing on a thankless, unending task, it's uh, it's George oh, yes. R. R. Martin. Still working on it. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, Echo isn't new to a lot of your readers. It came out in in well, ever in 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 Europe in 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 Dutch. What three years ago? In 2019, yes, it was. Uh... And what's the reaction been to it? Has it been? Has it? Has it followed well on Hex's coattails? What are you pleased with the reaction? Oh yes, yeah. And no, I'm really happy with the reaction. It was. Um, um, I mean, my Dutch readers have been waiting for a long time as well as have you now. Um, I am tremendously happy with the way people perceive this book. Um, and I cannot wait to see what people over in the UK and US and Australia and the many other places where this book will be released over the next couple of years uh, will think. But I'm also very happy that after Echo, I never had that same bump with writing anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, the, the next book is coming up next year already in England, for instance. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy that I overcame that, um, the, the pressure that was on it after Hex. Well, that, that all brings us actually quite neatly to a, a final few questions about the translation process. Yeah. You're the first author I've spoken to whose book has been translated. And I'm really interested, first of all, in how that process works generally. What level of control do you have? How does it work? It depends a bit on your uh, level of, you know, linguistic abilities, I guess, as a writer. I studied English language. I studied uh, American literature. So my English, my English is pretty decent. Um, I don't really feel comfortable writing directly in English because it's just not my native tongue. But I feel good enough to able to be able to judge a text and to edit a text. So that's what we do. Hex was translated by Nancy Forrest Fleer. She's really good. Echo was translated by Mosh Jalula. He's an Israeli-American Dutchman, and um, he's awesome. His language rocks. Um, we needed a really um, standout voice for Sam in, in the book because he, he's a linguist. He has this like virtuoso way of telling a story, I think. And we needed to find a good translator for that. And Mosh was perfect for that. And he turned him into a really good character, I think. So the way it then works is uh, the translator translates the book and I get to edit it. So I get to put my own voice in and, and I'm... Even though both Nancy and Moshe has done tremendous jobs in translating my book, I am pretty stubborn. So there's quite a few things that I, uh, you know, change a little bit here, change a little bit there, add a little bit here, add a little bit there, um, just to make it mine in the end, you know. Um, and then it goes into the regular editing process with the publishers. And when that's done, the translator and I both get to look at it again and we decide on the final text. That all makes perfect sense. But when it comes to horror, horror is such a subjective genre. It's all about sensation and kind of sliding realities and things that don't have an obvious real world referent, you know. So I wonder, yeah. does that complicate the translation process? Because more than with realist fiction, your translator mm -hmm. is having to convert things that only exist in your head 
Well, that, that is true, and that's why I um, take this round of edits on it because I want to convey it the way I meant it. And often the translators already did so. Sometimes I slightly edit it because I feel it needs a little bit, a bit of a different touch, which is fine. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's a bit different when you live in England or in America, but when you live in basically any other language territory, you are used to reading a lot of a lot trans, a lot of translation. Um, I mean, in all of Europe and all of the world, Stephen King is a very big name author, for instance. Uh, but he's not the only one. There's many others. And when you read a translation, if you don't read it originally in English, you don't necessarily are aware that you're reading a translation. You're just reading a novel mm -hmm. in your own language. Uh, so you assume that it's been done right. And as a writer, therefore, you also need to assume that the translators do it right because you, you need to have that you have that faith in a translator because it is an art form it's a very important art form because it makes you know stories cross borders and be able to be discovered by so many people around the globe so it's a beautiful thing um but yeah you need to let go and trust your translators as well for instance my um hex was translated in chinese and vietnamese and japanese and uh, Portuguese and many other languages which I do not read. Um, so you just trust the translator that they've done it right. Well, they, I mean, from what I've seen, they've done a damn good job on this one. Managed to terrify me, So, and I read a lot of stuff. So, yeah, credit to both of you, I guess. That makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of good things to read, though, can you recommend a book for my listeners to read and tell us why? Yeah, so what I would like to recommend is something that's has hasn't gotten the right amount of attention that it should get i think uh maybe it has in britain I'm, I'm not really sure but you know years ago like in 2007 there was this guy stephen hall who, who published the raw shark text yeah um that was brilliant a really good book um, he now just has a new book out, or I think it came out last year. It was called Maxwell's Demon. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll be honest, I'm just a couple of chapters in, but I love it. it. It's as good as the raw shark text. But somehow this hasn't gotten, you know, hasn't blown up the way it should be, I think. Because he, he's a terrific writer. He's, he's clever. He's funny. It's creepy what he writes. Uh, but there's also a lot of love and tenderness in there. And I really love that. Well, I, I haven't read that. I've read the Raw Shark text and I went into it thinking I'm not going to like this book because I tend to not like over the top sort of whimsy or, you yeah. know, absurdity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I loved mm -hmm. it. I mean, it's a book about about killer, invisible, conceptual sharks, <laughs> you know, they, exactly. with, yeah. um, <laughs> with a strange ontological kind of existential thing going on um and i i saw that maxwell's demon came out and i was really excited and it's just kind of got lost in the mix for me so that has yeah that's put it back on my on my horizon so thank you i don't know you know about this but did you hear about the thing about the words that were hidden around the sit around hull did you hear about this no i didn't so you know you know in the raw shark text it's all about urban explorers yeah mm -hmm. there is basically an extra chapter of that book that only exists in graffiti form, supposedly. There's loads of stuff that is just written on random walls in and around Hull, the town of Hull where it's set. That is awesome. No one, even now, no one has yet found them all, but people have found enough that it's starting to coalesce into a kind of, you know, a coherent piece of text. That's fantastic. And, and I just love that kind of stuff. I mean, I know, it, I know it's bullshit, but I, I do like it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, he must have had so much fun doing that. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, my last question, Thomas. I've told you about my numerous terrors. Let me ask you, what really scares you? So there's a couple of things. Um, there's some mundane things, like um, I am, for instance, scared of sharks. I know the statistics. I know that they are friendly creatures and that we do them much more harm than they do us but come on they are like the 
the one thing in this universe that's real and that looks like a monster with those this this open mouth this gaping mouth of teeth coming right for you and in the water they're always stronger than you are as a swimmer so yeah i'm somehow afraid of sharks i i go you know cliff jumping quite often in the mediterranean and even though there are hardly well there are sharks in the mediterranean but you know not as close to shore and not really the big ones but still every time i'm jumping i always fear there's this gaping mouth opening beneath me that i'll jump right into it never happened but i still try to overcome the fear and do it so that's a very mundane and kind of silly um you know fright that i have but on a more deeper level i'm afraid to lose loved ones like sam in the book i guess it started with me when my father died when i was really young i was three years old um and ever since Whenever I was in a relationship breakup or when I had to say goodbye to people or I really had a hard time with that and I'm afraid to lose loved ones. So yeah, that that's a scare that a lot of people have, but I feel particularly strongly. Mm-hmm. Obviously you've written a book all about it as well. So I think that, I mean, that, that yeah. comes through quite strongly yeah. um, in this, that, that sense of bond and, and the threat when a loved one leaves your sight, yeah. not so many sharks, but, but who knows in the future, the main, who knows, <laughs> I mean, there's nothing else to say now, Thomas, apart from, once again, your book has done a number on me. I'm still recovering from it. Um, other people may read it and think, don't be so soft, Neil, what you're talking about. But I think <laughs> I think everyone will read it and enjoy it. So all I have to say now is, Thomas, is thank you for your time and thank you for talking scared. Thank you. I really appreciate um, that you were so scared and thrilled by the book. <laughs> thank you so much. Time for some brutally embarrassing honesty this week, I think. So, you heard me talk to Thomas there about the power of fiction to get under the skin, even when you know what you're reading isn't true. That is the magic that we're dealing with, after all, and it is a beautiful sorcery. But every now and again, as a horror reader especially, it goes wrong. Echo sent me into a tailspin. I don't think I really made it clear to Thomas how much this book distress me. Something about it frightened me to the point that I spent the week having pretty intrusive thoughts. I was dreaming about it and actually experiencing some of the physical symptoms experienced by characters in the book. The power of the mind, right? And even though I know it's not real, even though I've spoken to the person who wrote the damn thing, I still couldn't shake the dread. You'll be glad to hear it's now dissipating. I didn't say this to Thomas because it wouldn't have sounded nice, but I actually wanted desperately to stop reading Echo. Not because it's not good. It's great. For the first half, I loved it, but because I was just so bothered by it. And unfortunately, I've made a commitment to the show and to you guys and to the authors. And that commitment was that I wouldn't interview someone without reading the book. So I pressed on and it was not a fun week afterwards. We can laugh about this. Now, that's not to say it'll happen to you if you read this book. It almost certainly won't bother anybody. I've read far, far more horrible things that haven't got under my skin. It was just a weird mix of the right book and the wrong mental health state. And to be fair, I also had a night of doom scrolling about the thermonuclear war in the Ukraine. So I think I'm probably just having a bit of a head wobble. But yeah, Echo was a tough one for me. And then there's that second layer of worry there as well. The worry about the fact that I'm able to worry about a made-up story. Because surely that must mean I'm mad. You know, I can't tell the difference between reality and fiction. It's a whole Gordian knot. So I'm turning this over to you guys. Do any of you ever have an experience with a story where you aren't able to put it away? Where it creeps into your thoughts in an uncomfortable way? Tell me about it. I'd like to know what story, what happened, how do you overcome it? It's an interesting topic and you may just make me feel a little less odd. When did this podcast become free therapy for me? Sorry. (laughs) You can get in touch on Twitter, Insta or TikTok at TalkScaredPod or email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I'd be delighted to hear your experiences with stories that really, really bothered you.
on the other side of all this, an actual recommendation. If you want a break from horror, it happens, or even a break from fiction altogether, I recommend John Krakauer's Into Thin Air. It's one of the mountain books that we mentioned in our conversation, and it's my single favourite piece of non-fiction. It's, it's an account, I suppose, of what was then the worst ever loss of life in a single day on Everest. And it just so happens that the author was commissioned to take part in the expedition. So you get a journalist's eye view of the disaster firsthand. It's masterful, and it reads like a thriller, even if you don't like mountaineering. And trust me, I don't. You'll love this. I told my very indoor wife to read it, and she couldn't stop talking about it. For my own health, actually, I'm going to retract that comment there about my wife being very indoors. In fact, she has taken up both running and swimming recently, and I'd like to say well done in this public forum that she does listen to. Well done, G. I'm proud of you. Bit of a domestic tangent there, but forgive me, and we're back on track. If you want to support the show and my marriage, <laughs> as ever, Route 1 is to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Apple and Spotify are key, but anywhere else is great as well. If you've got five minutes when I stop talking, and I eventually will, <laughs> please do that. It means the world. Also, you can access bonus content, including a recent extended chat with Ali Wilkes, the three-part History of Horror series with Roger Lockhurst, and the upcoming extras with Thomas and others. That's all on Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod, and the link's in the show notes. All contributions are massively appreciated, and I'll be shouting out some recent subscribers in the next episode. But otherwise, that's it from me this week. I'm off to continue working on my frail mental state. I'm back next time for an in-depth chat about some freaky queer short stories with Leon Craig. But until then, check the rope is secure, keep a keen eye on the weather, and whatever you do, don't look down. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>